0: We, we thank you that we serve a generous God. And just pray that um, just every every part of this service that would just connect to the longing in our hearts to be known and to be sent out by you. praise in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I have the pleasure of introducing our guest preacher today. Um, his name is Rob Morris, and he's the, the president of Love 146, and, um, and actually uh, the, part of the reason why Rob has come to speak is that it's the 10th anniversary of Braveheart, our church's anti-trafficking ministry. Um, and... Our Braveheart ministry is led by Vera Lee, and Kevin Myers, Joy Midori, Jen Jackson, Nadine Felice, George Belwar, and Brady Sheward are all a part of um, this anti-trafficking team that we have. And we had this incredible weekend. We had an abolitionist workshop yesterday where we're talking about, like, what does it take to actually stay in the game of doing the work of God's justice for, for the long haul? And um, part of what has fueled that fire for Braveheart since the beginning is the work of Love 146. And my fun connection is that I used to work for Love 146, and um, I happened to be the troublemaker that let people at our church know about Love 146 about 12 years ago. And, you know, Rob's going to tell the story um, and and just even give you an update of just some of the amazing work that Love 146 is doing in the world. But let me just tell you a quick story about Rob. Um, So I interviewed in 2005 when the organization was just getting off its feet, and I was still a high school teacher. So I've got my master's in elementary ed, I taught in the South Bronx, and then I was um, at that time teaching high school English in this bougie prep school in Connecticut. And my husband Caleb knew that I was God was starting to speak to me about this human trafficking thing. And we were just kind of in this prayer research mode. And so he hears about this startup organization. He's like, Kathy, I've set up a coffee. You got you you should talk. And I don't think I fully realized it, but um, I was like, Oh, this coffee is turning into an interview, <laughs> and Rob is taking notes on the napkin of uh, where we're at in the restaurant, and I'm like, good God, they can't even afford paper. How are they going to fight human trafficking if they can't even afford paper? But um, I, I remember kind of coining my own task, like, yeah, I, I, I'm all in. You know, I am fully, fully prepared to fight human trafficking. I am a high school English teacher. (laughs) I have all of the credentials, all of the qualifications. And they took a risk on me. And Rob took a risk. And it was an incredible journey of, of learning how to give what you have and to trust that when you're on a mission that the Lord lines things up for all the things that you don't have yet. And that's something that Rob has instilled in me for 15 years, and I'm so pleased for him to be sharing his, his message of perseverance with us. Welcome, Rob.
1: Somebody gave me a cool Wonder Woman um, bottled water, so thanks for that. <laughs> uh. Thanks, Kathy. That former English teacher now sits on our board of directors, too. So we're just finding ways to keep yeah, pulling her in. Um, Yeah, so thank you for not just having me this weekend, but for um, over a decade of supporting our work. You guys have been in this um, for the long haul with us. We deeply appreciate it, obviously, especially the the Braveheart volunteer team who have been in this for now 10 years, which is just a an amazing thing. It's super, super encouraging. I think it's something really powerful when the church rises up and leans in uh, in the work of justice um, in the world. It's not some optional side ministry, I think, that God calls us a few special people to. I think it's something that we should all be involved in. The Bible is very clear that this is what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, not to talk about it or write about it or consider it but the word do there insinuates some kind of action. And you, through your generosity, have been doing uh, justice, specifically, in creating a safer world for children. So that does not go unnoticed. And um, yeah, we just really, really appreciate it. Um, I was here, the last time I was here was, um, this, is, I, this is a memorable thing, because it was the, uh, the best chili I've ever had was at a chili cook-off in this church. <laughs> and the hottest chili I ever had in my life was actually in this church. So thanks for engaging with our work and thank you for making great chili. We appreciate it. Um, So those of you that are not familiar with Love 146, very quickly, we are working to end the trafficking and exploitation of children, nothing less. Um, and we began this work about a little over 17 years ago. Uh, myself and a couple of friends had been hearing for the first time about this issue called human trafficking and specifically child trafficking. And back then that was relatively new terminology. Um, not a lot of people knew what trafficking was. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, so it was like, what, it, what is this? And we were astounded to think that this is happening today that the most vulnerable amongst us are being treated like commodities, um, exploited and abused for absolutely horrific reasons. And it was just like, what what can we do about this? And so a couple of us just started to research and, and try to educate ourselves on what was happening and who was doing what. We discovered an organization. There were only a few organizations at the time actually dealing specifically with this issue. And this one organization is made up of criminal investigators Um, who do uh, investigations into places where uh, people are being exploited and and treated like commodities, Um, very, very intense work. We connected with them, started to build a relationship with them. They said, hey, if you want to do something about this, you really need to understand it, you really need to educate yourself. So we continued that process and part of that education, they invited us to one of their operating centers to see firsthand the kind of work that they were doing and we found ourselves in a Southeast Asian country at one of their operating centers um, and they were in the middle of actually, when we were there, an investigation of a particular brothel in this city. And they um, explained a little bit about what they do and they basically, these investigators go in undercover into these places posing as customers. Um, They have undercover surveillance equipment on, they gather evidence, video evidence. When they have enough evidence, they actually have to do a separate investigation of local law enforcement um, to try to weed out those that might be getting paid by brothel managers or traffickers to look the other way or to actually protect them and all of that. When they do find those that are honest, those that are actually sympathetic to getting kids out of these horrific situations, law enforcement comes in after they have enough evidence and they do a recovery operation and get these kids out of those situations and then basically put um, onto the long road to recovery and sometimes that looks like a shelter or safe home thing where they can begin their journey back home again hopefully to their families if their families and their homes were not complicit in them being trafficked to begin with and I know that I just completely oversimplified a very complex and very long um, process but that's what doing justice looks like it is a long uh, journey it's the long-haul commitment Um, but it's a pretty complex operation and I remember this particular night they were like, hey, we're actually going in tonight. Um, do you, do you want to come and see firsthand what this looks like? And we were like, yeah. And, and this is not something that they would normally do, but because of the relationship that we had with them and the trust that was established, um, they thought it was okay. And they gave us this brief instruction um, on how to pose as a customer. And it was probably the most disturbing experience in my life to try to pretend to be the very thing that everything in me is completely and utterly repulsed by. And I remember right before we went in, one of the last things this investigator said before we went in, he says, look, if you don't think you can do this, if you don't think you can hold it together, or you might freak out or something with what you're about to see, do not come in, because we cannot risk you freaking out and destroying an investigation that has taken quite a long time um, to, uh, to establish. And we were like, oh, no worries, until we got in there. And I found myself standing in a room looking through these glass windows and behind those glass windows um, were these girls sitting there with matching red dresses on, having even the dignity of a name stripped from them. They just had numbers pinned to their dresses. And on this side of the glass, I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with what could only be described as predators who are purchasing these kids for absolutely horrific reasons. And I remember in that moment hearing those words of the investigator again going through my head, if you don't think you can hold it together, because everything in me as a man, as a father, as a human being, was not holding it together very well as I was looking at what I was looking at. Everything in me was trying to figure out, man, can we smash through this glass right now and get as many of these kids out of here as we can? How many of these guys in this room could we take out? All of these crazy thoughts going through. And we had to refrain from doing anything in that moment because of the need for the investigation to be completed so that real justice could take place and the place could be completely shut down for good. And it was a horrific experience. And the thing that made it even more horrific and the thing that took my breath away was the looks in the eyes of these children. I have seven kids of my own, and one of the few things that I've learned about children through the years is that if there should be anybody on the planet that has a light on in their eyes, that has that sparkle in their eyes, it should be a kid. I mean, you just saw all of the kids just run out of here, right? They're laughing, they're kidding with each other, poking each other, everything, excited for the next thing. That's the way childhood is supposed to look that was missing in this room. Uh, These kids were sitting, they were watching children's cartoons on these crackling television sets and there were these blank robotic stares just looking like they were shut down. And um, it was gutting. And I remember specifically not only that look, but there was one girl in particular. My guess was that she was probably new to the brothel because she was the only one that wasn't looking at the children's cartoons. There was not a blank stare on her face. Instead, she was looking at us and there was this fierceness Um, in her eyes. And I will never forget those eyes or that face or her number. Her number was 146. And so our organization um, was sort of birthed and then also named to remember that this is not about an issue or a cause. This is about real human beings. This is a real person who represents multitudes of people, but a real, real child. And um, to remember that keeps perspective Uh, for us and so we started we left there that night thinking okay now what do we do with what we've just seen? Where do we go from here? And we began to, again, continue to educate ourselves, find out what are the needs, what are some places, where are the gaps, what can we do to contribute to this movement? And out of that was Birth Love 146, where we began doing survivor care, caring for survivors of child trafficking who have been uh, recovered, where they can begin um, uh, their long road to recovery. Um, And then after doing survivor care in the Philippines, both with girls and boys, we began to do survivor care also in the UK, and then eventually here in the United States, and because this is not something that just happens over there, it's something that happens in our own neighborhoods, in our own communities. It's why you have a volunteer team based right out of um, uh, this church. Um, and so um, after doing survivor care for some time, in fact, we've provided um, care to a little over 500, we've, we've, yeah, we've provided... Um, Uh, direct services to over 500 kids just in the state of Connecticut who were either confirmed or or, uh, um, expected victims of trafficking. That's just crazy, 500 kids just in the small state of Connecticut, But after doing survivor care for some time, we thought, we're never going to end this by just caring for the results of a gross injustice without doing prevention work. And so then we began to do uh, prevention work, um, both here in the United States as well as in um, Madagascar and Liberia. And so since 2002, um, we've been able to reach over 57,000 children on four continents. And that's been made possible by people like you guys who have said, man, I'm in. I refuse to be a bystander. I'm, I'm all in. So that's what your generosity um, is accomplishing. And it's an important thing. Those of you that want to know more about the organization or how you can get involved, here are some ways. If you can click that to the next slide. Those of you that are the, are the praying type, which I'm guessing there's a few of you in here. Um, if you text love146 to that number, 411247, you become part of our prayer team. And maybe once a month, sometimes twice a month at most, we won't bombard you with texts, you'll get a, um, a, a text from us with a prayer request. And usually it's an emergency type scenario. This is what's going down, this is about to, what's going down. Could you please pray? And we get people all over the place. Um, beginning to pray. Sometimes it'll be a celebratory text saying, hey, thank you for your prayers. This is what happened. Um, we're, we're grateful um, uh, f- for you praying. So if you want to get involved that way, that's a really practical way to get involved. Partnering with us on a monthly basis. Our monthly partners are the lifeblood of the organization. Obviously, we can't do child sponsorships for obvious reasons as far as the identity of children and, and all of that and not revealing that. But the partnering with us on a monthly basis really enables us to strategize and be really good stewards with the funding that comes in because we know and can depend on we know this is what's coming in every month absolutely core and crucial and we're always looking for more people that are willing to become monthly sponsors Um, and then uh, mobilizing by joining a volunteer team you guys this is the beautiful thing about speaking here today is that you have one of those already in place oftentimes when I go to a church or a place um, you know I'm I'm trying to encourage people to think about starting something like that you've been doing it for 10 years man so you've already got something like that in place if you want to get get more involved by joining a volunteer team and looking at the trafficking issues right here um, in your community, Um, this is a great way to do it. In fact, last night I was given this note saying that if you're interested in getting involved locally in anti-trafficking work, please attend the next Braveheart meeting here at the church on March 15th at 1 p.m. So there you got it, right there. Practical way you can kick right into getting involved, and this is just coming up in a couple weeks, March 15th, 1 p.m., and you can become part of that. All right, Um, So, where do we go from here? I wanted to talk this morning about hope. Um, It's getting crazy out there, man, if you haven't noticed. Um, There seems to be almost this sense of a growing um, storm of just what is happening in the world and we're bombarded 24-7 with the news of all the craziness and the madness of what's happening in the world. And I'm finding everywhere I'm going people are beginning to really and deeply struggle with staying hopeful. I see this sense of growing despair and cynicism and a a hopelessness and even a helplessness. I see it even when when I I take the bus every morning to my office and I see on on our our town green in New Haven, uh, Connecticut, I see a weariness in people's faces. Of, of, of just trying to navigate what looks like really dark waters and, and, and a dark time that we're living in, people struggling um, with hope. And so I've sort of been on this quest of looking at hope and what does that mean. And, and I found this interesting piece written by Dave Edgars that I think um, sort of touches on a little bit of this. And he says this, he says, to yelp, open your mouth, convulse your stomach as you would before a belch or before vomiting. Now, form a word, a thousand words, but emit none. In a place of the words, you might attempt to make a sound. The sound is a combination, actually, of three sounds. Each of these represents a third of your yelp. First, there is the shrieking sound you might make if you hit your head on the bottom edge of an open kitchen cabinet door. It is sudden, high-pitched, and angry. It speaks of the stupidity of pain. Second, there is a whining aspect. Imagine that you've not slept for many days, and after those many days, you're punched in the gut. Then you're told to run over that hill yonder and back, and when you return, you're punched in the sternum. You ask for mercy. They laugh and kill your dog. They break the objects that you care about. This is the whine to keep in mind. This is exhaustion. Third, the last factor in your Yelp is the moan. The moan is the moan of powerlessness. The moan is shock in the face of natural horror. A landslide, an avalanche, brutality, a flood, machetes. This portion of your Yelp says that you did not think you could be surprised or overwhelmed, but you've been proven wrong. You did not think after seeing some 10,000 or so murders on television, after reading so much history, that anything could stick its fist through you but you've been proven wrong, and you did not want to be proven wrong. When you combine these three things, the shriek, the whine, and the moan, and condense them into a sharp burst that originates in your liver and expels itself from your body via all six to seven different orifices at once, you have yelped. Yelping cannot be practiced or forced. Yelping will come only when provoked. The yelp is efficient. And the Yelp says a great deal with great economy. I have found myself in recent years yelping more in the work that I do and how horrific it can possibly get for the most vulnerable. And there's that internal gut reaction that happens. I'm meeting more and more people that are walking around broken on the wheels of living and out comes the yelp of suffering. And so we're living in this place. And some of you are in that place, even possibly right now. And, I, and I, I had dinner with a friend of mine some years ago who we celebrate our birthdays one day apart. And he's a little older than me, but we're, we're sitting at a restaurant celebrating our sort of mutual birthday dinner. And in the context of that dinner, to read the menu, I have to wear these now. Okay, something happened when I turned 50 that I have to wear reading glasses now. My eyesight is going, right? So I I made a joke about it. I'm like, man, I can't even see this menu. I got to get my my reading glasses. And then as I was talking about that, I was talking about not only that, I said, but I've lost almost all the hearing in one of my ears. Like if I have conversations with people, if I go out to dinner or do something like that, I have to strategically place myself to who I need to be talking with so that I can actually hear them. Because if you're on one side of me, I don't hear a thing. I'm not actually being rude and ignoring you. I just don't hear you. I'm losing my hearing. So I'm like, my eyesight's going, my hearing's going. And he's like, man, that's nothing. My cholesterol is off the roof. And And we're all talking, right? And then all of a sudden, we just did what you just, we just start laughing because we realize, oh my gosh, we are those? guys now. We're those old guys at dinner that are just complaining about how our bodies are falling apart and we're deteriorating and stuff, right? And as we're laughing, I said, you know what's crazy is that as my the physical aspects of me seem to be starting to wind down, I said, something else is happening internally that I'm starting to pay attention to in that there is this hope that has been rising inside of me. And I can't completely identify why that is. Because everything around me says that it should be happening just as my body's falling apart. Hope should be diminishing too because of the time that we're living in. Because of the work that I'm doing. Hope should actually be diminishing for the things that I've seen and continue to see. But just the opposite is happening. Hope is rising in me. I'm like, where is that coming from and how is that happening? If I could figure out how that happens, maybe I could write a book and and fund the work of Love 146 forever, because all of us would love to know, how do I stay hopeful when everything around me is pushing against hope, when there's despair that seems to be growing in this growing sense uh, uh, of a storm? And, And so we started talking about that, and we thought, in Love 146, we find that there are two aspects of hope that we've learned about and continue to learn about. One is what we call a hope deferred, and the other is what we call a defiant hope, or hope defiant. And when I think about hope deferred, I go to Psalm 40, verse 1. Listen to this passage. The psalmist cries out, I waited, and waited, and waited for God. When I hit this passage, I'm like, isn't it interesting that he didn't just say, I waited for God. Can you feel his ache in writing this? Can you feel the longing? It's not just, I waited for God like you're waiting for a bus, but there's an ache here. I waited, and I waited, and I waited for God. How many of you can identify with that kind of waiting? Some of you have been waiting for a really long time. You've been in this hope deferred place of that thing that you're longing for, that thing that you hope for and everything always seems to be right out of reach and it's not happening and there's that same ache I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and the thing that I'm hoping to see accomplish is not happening it's what the Bible calls a deferred hope in Proverbs 13 12 it talks about that says hope deferred makes the heart sick but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life we love to sort of like let's get past that first part of that verse quick and move right into the oh a longing fulfilled is a tree of life I want to live in that place But so many of us have the life narrative of not necessarily living in that place for very long, but we seem to live in that first place a long time. That, man, I'm living in a place of heart sickness because that waiting and waiting and waiting and that hope being deferred has made my heart sick during that time of waiting. How long, God? I mean, it's like Psalm 13 when he cries out, How long, O oh God, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That deferred hope. The word deferred means postponed and put off. And I've experienced this when I start to really learn about hope deferred. I've learned it through um, my, my wife and I. have uh, our five, five of our youngest kids have been adopted. And we've learned a lot about waiting and waiting and waiting through the adoption process. Those of you that have ever been in that process know what that's about. Lots of paperwork, lots of waiting for approvals. And and especially when you're doing international adoptions, you're waiting for governments to approve things. And sometimes there's snafus and things change and they change laws and and waiting. And we've done a lot of waiting for children to come into our family and the longing and the aching that takes place. I'm going to show you a quick picture here. Um, This is a little girl that we were waiting for for several years. Um, uh, and there is, unfortunately, a thing in the adoption world, a category of children called waiting children. You guys, there should never be a category of children called waiting children. Children who are waiting and waiting and waiting for a family of their own, for a home of their own, and continue to wait in a system. And there's this waiting and waiting and waiting thing that's, that's taking place. And usually, a child falls into the category of a waiting child category for, for several reasons. Two of those reasons usually are that they're an older child, because not a lot of people are lining up to adopt older children. People want to adopt infants. Or a child with disabilities, because not a lot of, ch- lot of people are lining up to adopt children with disabilities. Uh, this little girl, she's in uh, Vietnam. Um, what it was in the waiting category for both of those reasons. She was seven years old So so an older child and she has Down syndrome and so we began that adopt and we waited and waited and through the process of, of Adopting her um, we had this sort of like almost afterthought embarrassingly So we started thinking about man. We know what the ache is of waiting for her. What must it feel like for her to be waiting? Is she also heartsick? And we were gutted at the thought of like, man, she's seven years old. She's been in an orphanage since birth. How long has she been waiting? How long has she had to see you know, a, a family come in and wondering, is this the family that will take me home? Is this the family that will be my family and watch them adopt another child? And she's there again, waiting and waiting. What sort of heart sickness do these children wrestle with? What sort of that sense of that hope deferred? That's what I'm talking about. When we talk about hope deferred, And that sort of like ache that comes with that, that's what we're talking about here. We see it in the work that we do with children who are waiting for justice wanting to see justice happen, that this perpetrator that did these horrific things to me is still out there somewhere. When justice happens, we see the longing fulfilled peace happen, and we see one girl described it as like, I feel like while I was waiting for justice to happen, that there was a thorn in my heart. When justice finally happened and the person was found, prosecuted, and sent to prison, it was like somebody pulled that thorn out of, out of my, uh, my, my heart. That sort of waiting, that sort of hope deferred thing. Um, so I've been on this quest to try to figure out how do we keep hope alive, not just in the waiting, but man, in the midst of what looks like a gathering storm, to keep my heart from getting sick in the waiting place. And what does that look like? And when I think about what's happening in the world and what I describe as like a gathering storm, I'm always reminded of my grandfather and his stories that he used to tell me of his times at sea. My grandfather was the quintessential Hemingway, old man in the sea. He went to sea when he was 17 years old, back I think in the 1920s, um, w- uh, sailed the tall ships as a merchant marine all over the world and everything. And I loved as a kid sitting at my grandfather's feet and listening him to tell those stories. He'd have the pipe in his mouth, the whiskers, the whole classic what you would picture as the old man and the sea. And I remember one particular story he used to tell um, where there was a storm at sea that, he, that, there, that they were caught and they thought, this is it. We're probably going to go down. And the storm was so harsh that um, uh, they had to tie him, he was steering the ship, they had to tie him to a post so that as the, as the waves were crashing over the decks of the ship, he wouldn't be washed away and he could continue to steer the ship. And I'm as a kid with these wide eyes just like picturing my grandfather, you know, tied to this post and the waves crashing over the ship and him trying to, to steer this ship through the storm. I just loved those stories. So I always had, grew up with this fascination with the sea. I've read Shackleton's voyages. I've read Moby Dick and Hemingway's Old Man and the Sea. In fact, there's a cemetery in a little tiny fishing village in Nova Scotia, Canada, called Advocate Harbour, where almost everybody in the cemetery that's buried there is related to me. They're a Morris. That's where my roots go on my father's side and my grandfather's side. And I remember going to that cemetery one time and looking at the the headstones, and so many of the headstones were people that were related to me, and they were people of the sea. It was like you know, Captain. William Morris, you know, first mate, Michael Morris. And so I've always carried this sort of like pride of like, I come from the sea, you know. Roar, you know. I don't, but man, I feel like I have this heritage that is rich with people who were those kinds of people that know uh, what that kind of life um, has looked like. And in looking at um, that whole concept and that understanding of, of the sea, one of the stories that I found one time was a story of a kind, a kind of um, mariner that lived in ancient Greece. And you know how like on ships you have different positions. You have the navigator, you have the captain, first mate, second mate, and the cook and all of that. Well, in ancient Greece there was a kind of mariner and his title was called the archegos um, in, in Greek. And the word archegos in Greek literally means trailblazer, pioneer or captain sometimes or even used sometimes uh, for the word author. And so the Archegos' job was when there was a storm at sea and a ship needed to make it safe into a harbor to weather out the storm, sometimes the ship wouldn't make it into the harbor. It would actually run aground on rocks because of the, the storm and the waves crashing it into um, uh, the rocks within sight of shore. They could see safety, they could see um, a a safe place, but they couldn't make it there because the ship ran aground and it was too far to make it. And so they would literally hide under the decks of the ship as the storm battered the ship to pieces and many times would die. Well, in that situation, the Archegos kicked in. The Archegos' job was basically, he was the strongest swimmer on the ship. And when that situation occurred, they would call up the Archegos. And while everybody else was cowering under the decks of the ship, the Archegos' job, he would get to the edge of the, the ship. They would tie a rope around his waist and tie the other end of the rope to something on the ship. And he would dive into the crashing surf and swim as hard as he could, having his body battered against rocks and potentially even drowning. He, if he made it to safety, the safety of the shore, he would take the rope off of himself, tie it to a rock or a tree or something solid on shore, and it created a lifeline for the other people on the ship to be able to make it to safety. They'd be able to come up out of the decks, and they had a way now to get to shore. Can you imagine having to be the Archegos? The very thing that is terrifying everybody else, you're actually not only having to face, but dive right into. What sort of courage did it take to be the Archegos? I don't think it was just courage. I think it was almost an act of defiance. I mean, I could picture sort of like the scenes from Forrest Gump, like, yeah, well, I'm coming in, kind of thing. And just diving into the mess, knowing that everything depends on me. In order for these people to live, they're dependent on me to make it. And that driving that person uh, to the shore and to safety, the Archagos. I just love that whole um, picture. When I think about that, it just brings to mind this sense of defiance. And this is why we've began to um, connect the word defiance to hope. Growing up, I used to hear the word defiance always in negative terminology. You know, growing, I heard it from my school, to You're such a defiant young man. You're so defiant. Don't be so defiant. Don't be so defiant. Let me tell you something. That defiance now is paying off in spades as I've attached it to hope. Because I think sometimes people will meet me and they say, oh, Rob, you're such an optimist. I'm like, I'm not an optimist at all. Um, but I'm defiantly hopeful. And, and you know, I, I heard somebody recently or a couple years ago, they said, man, to be hopeful anymore is just, it, 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 it's, it's just foolishness. I'm like, no. I, first of all, you said that to the wrong person. Secondly, um, I don't think it's an act of foolishness. I think it's an act of defiance. That in the face of despair, in the face of growing cynicism and hopelessness, to be hopeful is an act of defiance. And it's not passive like optimism where I hope everything's going to turn out okay. It actually insists that things will turn out okay because of my action. It's action-oriented. I'm actually going to push against darkness. I'm not just going to let it overcome us. And you guys, the church, I think in these days, I'm looking around sometimes and I'm seeing the church. We're running around sometimes like out of the story of Chicken Little. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. We're freaking out. And sometimes we find ourselves, even as the church, hiding under the decks of the ship, trying to hopefully maybe weather out the battering of the storm that we see ourselves in. And meanwhile, God is calling uh, Archegosus to rise up in the midst of the craziness and the madness of what's happening in humanity. Imagine if the church began to rise up like Archegos is. What sort of hope would come into what a world that is longing and aching for some hope, that is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and dealing with um, uh, that hope that is deferred? God wants us to be like the archegos, people of defiant hope. How do I learn this, especially in the work uh, that I do with Love 146 or especially in the times that we're living in? I think for me personally, and I'm going to share just a couple of quick things of things that I'm picking up along the way that's helping me become more of a defiantly hopeful person. One of those things is I think I have somewhat of an advantage in that I think defiant hope is in my DNA. (laughs) And what I mean by that is back in 1960, my parents had their first child, a son. And then in 1961, they wanted, to, they wanted to have another child, but they were debating on whether that was a smart thing to do. Because in 1961, the world was going to end. We were in the middle of something called the Cuban Missile Crisis, where it was like, this is it, man. This is the apocalypse that was predicted. It's, it's going to happen. Missiles are pointing at, pointing at us. It's all over. In fact, in 1961, um, the president was encouraging Americans that if you have any nest eggs set aside, if you have any savings set aside, a good idea would be to invest in a bomb shelter in your yard. And, and you could, in 1961, you could buy a bomb shelter out of the Sears Roebuck catalog, which was the equivalent of Amazon back then. Okay? You could, you, look it up, Google it. You could find a bomb shelter being sold um, in 1961 out of the Sears Roebuck catalog. Um, but it was costly. And so my parents were dealing with these internal issues of like, we do we even want to bring another child into this world with the craziness? I talk to people all the time that talk like that now. It's like, man, do I want to bring a child into the world right now with the way things are? My parents were thinking about that many, many years ago in 1961. Do I want to bring a child into this madness? Not only that, but it's going to be really costly to bring in a child. We can't do both, build a bomb shelter or child. So my parents found themselves in this debate of like, hmm, bomb shelter, child, bomb shelter, child. Thank God that my parents were people of defiant hope. And gave into hope instead of fear and said, We're going to bring a child into this madness. And that child ended up being me. And so I think back and I think, my gosh, if my parents weren't defiantly hopeful, if my parents gave into fear and decided to hide under the decks in the craziness and the madness of that time, I wouldn't even be here today. Do you see the, what happens when we move in defiance? It could affect a lot of stuff. There wouldn't even be a loved One Forty Six. It's so weird when you start thinking about the butterfly effect of all of that, of just one act of an archegos called my mommy. <laughs> I think about that, and I think about other things. I look How, how do we embrace that? How we, we, man, we have examples around us. Be encouraged by the examples. The malalas of the world. You know, the MLKs of, of, of the world, the Mandelas of the world are all archegosses of hope that we can look to, that hope, another way of living is possible. We can live as archegosses even in the mess and the madness of a growing storm because people have done it. People are doing it all around us. If We just open our eyes instead of just like huddling underneath um, the decks. You know, I think about, um, even, even I'm learning about being defiantly hopeful even from my kids. Like I, if you go to um, uh, the next slide, um, we adopted another daughter before this daughter um, uh, many years ago, also from Vietnam. And and when when we were in Vietnam in the process of, of completing the adoption, she was with us for several days. And I started noticing that um, when we would we would go into our hotel room, we would put all of our shoes in front of the you know the door um, before walking into uh, the, the room. And um, every morning we would get up. And we would find this, um, and I asked my wife, I said, are you putting her shoes in my shoes and stuff? She goes, no, I'm not doing that. I'm like, what the heck? And every morning it was like that. And so we discovered what was happening was in the middle of the night, our new daughter, who had only been with us for days, would get up in the middle of the night and she would take her little shoes and she would go over to the door and she would plant them in my shoes, ensuring I will not be left behind again. I will not be forgotten again. It was an act of defiance. There was a sense of hope there of like, there's a new life that's ahead of me now, and I'm gonna make sure that I'm gonna grab a hold of this with everything in me, and you're not gonna forget me. It would be impossible for me to leave the room and put my shoes on without thinking, oh wait, there's another little one here that's supposed to be coming with us. I love that, so even from my kids, from the youngest, I'm learning what defiant hope looks like, that oomph to hope, not just optimism. You know, I think about even some of the children in our care. For our kids that are in our care to wake up in the morning and choose to live another day, it is an act of defiant hope. I remember one of the things that we love to do with some of the kids in our care, specifically in the Philippines, is we usually end our times together with a big dance party. And I remember one time in particular a few years ago where we had this big dance party. We even had a DJ that was there. Um, The the, the staff went out and bought confetti cannons for the kids to shoot off and stuff. We had colored lights and everything. And sure enough, at the end of the day, the dance party started. All the kids were out. I still remember the song that came on that got everybody on the dance floor. It was a song, Watch Me Whip, Watch Me Nay Nay. I don't even know what that means, but man, they put that that song on and all these kids knew the moves to this dance because they were all out on the dance floor and they were doing their thing and stuff. And I just sort of sat back and watched it all happening in front of me and I was stunned at the sounds and the beauty of children laughing the way children should be laughing children dancing, the way children should be dancing. I'm thinking, man, is recovery possible? I believe in a God who brings beauty from ashes, because I've gotten to see him do it, man. It's not just a nice little scripture that's put on a poster with a waterfall on it in a Christian bookstore to me. It's a very, very real thing that I get to actually see happening, and I'm watching this happening. I'm sitting in a chair, stunned by the whole thing, and as I'm sitting there, one of our younger girls, she's five years old. She's across the dance floor doing her thing, and. Um, she stops dancing because she sees me sitting in my chair, right? And she looks at me, and the look was one of these looks of sort of like, you sitting in a chair isn't going to do. And so she makes a beeline across the dance floor for me and grabs me by the hand, pulls me out on the dance floor, and you guys, I whipped and I nae nayed, man. I don't even know what the heck that is. I don't know what that is, but, but I attempted it. My kids are mortified at that, at that sight or even possibility of what that could have looked like. Um, but to me, that's what it looks like. I remember another time in the safe home where I was holding in my arms the youngest child that we had ever taken into our care who was an infant, one years old. He was a one year old. And I remember I'm standing there holding the, and I'm thinking, how could this be? How is this even This is insanity. And I'm holding this, this, this infant in, in my arms. And um, the baby started to cry. And as the baby started to cry, one of the older girls in the home who had been with us for a while took the baby from me, relieved me of the baby. And as soon as she took the baby, the baby stopped crying. And then I saw another girl come over, another one come over. And, they, and, I, and, I, st- and I stepped back and I watched as all the kids started to surround this baby and engulf this baby. And I thought, this baby's got a really good chance of recovery because of these little archegosses of hope that will be that for her one day. That when she, well, why did this happen? Is is recovery even possible? And she has all of these examples of these little archegoses of hope that are that for her. You know, so, man, it's possible. And then the last thing, as far as if any of that stuff doesn't work, to convince you that it's possible and could cause that to rise up inside of you, we have, as people of faith, the greatest example of defiant hope imaginable through Jesus, Check this verse out. Acts chapter 3, verse verse 10. I actually think it's verse 15, but it says, You killed, this is this is after remember Peter and John going to the temple and at the gate beautiful. It was the lame man, and and he's like, hey, do you have any money on you? And they're like, no, we don't have anything. But, hey, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and he walks. And he's like, what? And just absolutely blown away. And then a crowd gathers because of what took place, and Peter is always taking advantage of a crowd gathering, and he goes for it, and he really goes for it, as you can see here. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. You ready for this? This jolted me. The word author there in the original Greek is the word archegos. This is oh man, the hair on my arm just like stood straight up. The word author is actually look it up. It's the word archegos in Greek. Check out this next verse. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. The word prince is the word is the Greek word archegos in the original language. next, next verse. Uh, Hebrews 2.10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. The word pioneer comes from the Greek word archagos. Next verse. Hebrews 12, two, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the archegos and perfecter of faith. This is incredible that the concept of archegos exists also in the person of Jesus. In fact, if you really want to go there, you start to think about what is incarnation. We just celebrated incarnation a couple months ago, right, on Christmas. And we've so sanitized Christmas and everything like that. But man, what that was, was the archegos of heaven. That in the midst of the madness of our sin and selfishness what we've made of the world, we don't have a God who is hiding under the planks and the decks of the ship in the face of what had become of his creation. Instead, we have a God who stepped to the threshold of heaven and as an archegos dove into the madness, showing up like a baby in a manger. Springing out. This lifeline for hope of not only eternal life, but abundant life here on earth and now. Jesus, the author or archegos of life, the archegos or trailblazer of hope, the captain or archegos of our salvation. Oh, captain, my captain. I don't think it's enough to be content in just being inspired and resting in the fact that we have an Archagos in Jesus who's gone before us. I really truly believe that we're called to be the same for others. That we're called to be a people of defiant hope who jump into the stormy seas and lead the way for others who find themselves shipwrecked by hopelessness and despair. Rebecca Solnit says it this way, To hope is to gamble. It's to bet on the future, on your desires, on the possibility that an open heart and uncertainty is better than gloom and safety. To hope is dangerous, and yet it is the opposite of fear, for to live is to risk. I say all this to you because hope is not like a lottery ticket that you can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. I say this because hope is an axe that you break down doors with in an emergency because hope should actually shove you out the door. Hope just means another world might be possible, not promised or guaranteed, but hope calls for action, and action is impossible without hope. The work of hope requires people who throw themselves actively into what is becoming to which they themselves belong, and anything can happen, and whether we act or not has everything to do with it. Could we stand together? I love Margaret Wheatley says it this way. She says that hopelessness is not the opposite of hope. Fear is. Let's close our eyes as I read the words to a very, very familiar hymn as a prayer. My hope is built on nothing less in Jesus' blood and righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. You know, maybe you find yourself this morning shipwrecked yourself, run aground by despair, hopelessness, cynicism, or maybe you're overwhelmed by what feels like a strengthening storm. I want to encourage you to not only look to the archaic of hope that live and walk the earth now, but to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith in the ultimate archegos of defiant hope. In
0: Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Rob.